you know what bullets sound like when they fly over your shoulder? It's like, they sound like little bees as they buzz past your face. I'm very grateful that I don't know what that sounds like. <laughs> Literally, you can just feel them just... And you're looking down at your feet, trying to keep your balance in your feet. And you see you see the dust spraying all around your feet and everything. And you're just like, how is this dude missing me right now? That's Nathan Bolton. He's a former soldier who served two tours of Afghanistan as a special operations engineer in the Australian Special Forces. His primary objective was to find and clear improvised explosive devices planted across the battlefield by the enemy, and it led to him coming within an inch of death, literally. There's no torches, so I'm doing this all through night vision. I remember turning around and going, guys, I'm laying on an IED. Move away now. Surviving such horror caused Nathan significant trauma, but he didn't know it at the time. Having never learned to process his emotions, he'd instead been conditioned to bottle it all up and get on with the job. It took more courage for me to face my demons than it ever did to stand firm on the battlefield. After getting home from his second tour, Nathan wasn't the same. Suddenly he was experiencing fits of rage and being overwhelmed by a whirlwind of feelings and deep pain he couldn't understand. He was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and major depression, another battle that almost claimed his life. Suddenly I just start screaming in the car. It was like this beast in something, I had to get it out. I couldn't, I couldn't escape it. But he held on and through years of intense self-work, eventually rebuilt himself as a new man, capable of more than he ever imagined. Now the co-owner of a psychology practice for men and a champion of positive mental health, Nathan shares the story of who he was, what he went through and who he's become, a stunning example of personal transformation. For the first time in my life, yeah, the mask is off. This podcast is twice as long as usual because there's simply too much to Nathan's utterly enthralling story for it to be condensed. Stick around and listen through the full episode and I promise it'll be worth it. This is incredible stuff. I feel the sweat coming out of my hand now. This stuff just like lights you up like a Christmas tree. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Trigger warning, this episode discusses suicide. If you or someone you know is suicidal, please call Lifeline on 13 14 11 or the Suicide Prevention Hotline in your country. This episode has been made possible by Kookaburra Homes, the home builder that cares about the community. Kookaburra is big on investing in local projects that better our society and is an awesome supporter of Youngblood's mission to improve the lives of young men and everyone in their lives by opening up these conversations that we need to have. Nathan, what was your impression of what a real man was growing up? Well, it's true. Well, my brothers and I were brought up living in a shadow. My grandfather was a very prestigious, very accomplished man. We never met our grandfather. But our dad always passed on a lot of his stories to us. And I guess from a very young age, you looked on at this man going, holy crap, that's what we got to strive for to achieve in order to, I guess, be satisfied with the life that we live. I was very stoic growing up. Yeah. Let's say emotions need not apply in my life at that time. So it's uh, um, vulnerability and all that. I was, uh, yeah, I was the furthest from it. I think I told a girl I liked her once back in the heyday. And I was like, oh, God, Nathan, you're stretching. Did she like you back? <laughs> uh, that put you back in your hole, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did you view yourself through high school then? I wasn't the cool kid at all. I worked hard for all my grades. 
Um, didn't have any book smarts or anything like that. I wasn't in the core group. I wasn't in the group that got picked on. I sort of just floated in the middle. I just got through school. Like, but in like primary school, I got bullied in primary school. I'll never forget that. Little did I know the impact that that's going to have on my life in later years. Um, what happened there? It was actually by two girls younger than me. And, oh, they just, just call me names and pick on me. And I was a small guy. Certainly not the size back then I am now. Um, that would have been pretty concerning. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, a, I was a really small kid. And um, I had no idea the sheer impact that that had on my life. I literally forgot about it. Uh-huh. But it had been this underlying theme once I unpacked it throughout my entire life. And I only uncovered it, what, four or five years ago. And as a young kid, you don't know anything different other than like, have, have I done wrong or anything like that. You just like you, you blame yourself that you've got some sort of defect when you're getting bullied, um, and coming from a family that was very stoic, and um, you don't you weren't taught to pass on the way that you feel and problems in your life. You just suck it up and have a can of concrete, whatever the old expression goes. <laughs> How much was your self worth based on the sum of your achievements, given your grandfather's? status and the way you were sort of conditioned the one thing that i had growing up i didn't have much going for me but the one thing i did have was ambition and i guess that is what forged out of my uh, uh, my younger years is i had this unrelenting drive and ambition to succeed i knew how to set goals i knew how to achieve goals Um, whatever it is that i wanted i always achieved it I guess by the age of 21, I'd finished high school. I had earned a certificate three in geoscience, worked in the mines, worked on the oil rigs, was a volunteer firefighter for the country fire service, uh, joined the army and rose to special forces by 21. So was it the case that everything you ever did worked out to that point? Yeah. I'd, like I, if I, you I, set a goal and went after it, you got it. Yeah. That's what I learned to be able to do, mm. goal setting and obviously and having the perseverance and the audacity to keep pushing through and achieve it no matter what. Mm. Little did I know, though, by doing that, I also created one of my biggest shortfalls, and that was not learning to fail. And so... Of and achieving everything that you ever went after, that was all forming part of your, your story or your legend as Nathan Bolton, the guy who is this way and achieves these things. Yeah, um, uh, that's what achieving is what I did. And uh, But when it came to starting to get punched in the face by life, I wasn't prepared because literally I had not developed any resilience in order to deal with what was about to hit me. Mm. There's the expectations and there's reality. And for such a long period of time, I managed to maintain my reality with my expectations mm, so, always much, so much so that you thought that that was just going to be the continued trajectory and that's yeah. that's how it was meant to be yeah but then one day just suddenly just went mm. pulled apart mm. and i was no longer living up to the very notions in which i deemed to be um worthy of the man that i thought i was yeah. and so to myself long began the process where I believed I had failed to fulfill my own expectation of myself. Yeah, which was your key pillar of everything that meant something to you throughout your whole life. It did, very much yeah. so. So, Why did you join the army? Oh, <laughs> why did I join the army? Um, well, growing up, my uh, dad always used to go to the dawn service. 
every year without fail, I would always go there with him. None of my brothers, my brothers would go maybe once every blue moon, but every year morning, for every morning I'd always be there. And I guess for me, I looked on and I saw my old man. Now my, my dad is quite a, nah, he, this, yeah. He doesn't express himself very much. Um, we call him an emotional icebox these days. Uh, that's his one shortcoming. However, every time I'd go there every year, I'd see the marked respect that he would pay for those who served and I guess those who paid that ultimate sacrifice. And I guess for him, that came down through his, old, his, his father, um, who had a absolutely amazing um, life when it came to supporting the, those who've served through like uh, World War One and World War Two. And I guess I remember looking on and I'm like, man, my dad doesn't say much. But right now I can, you can see the admiration in his eyes looking on and I was like, well, that's a surefire way to earn the same respect myself. And how much did his respect mean to you? Everything. Did you feel like you had it? Did you feel like you had it? No. If, you, if, they're not, if you're not being told that your dad's proud of you, Although they may, you you might know in like innately like that your instincts telling you that you haven't done anything wrong and he's here and he's a great father. But there's no, no, no affirmation. No, there's and there's no, no affection. No, and this is where and it. it uh, so you constantly chased it because you could never get it. Mm. And I guess every kid wants their dad to be proud of him. Yeah. Oh, who who doesn't? And so yeah, from that I ended up uh, joining the army. So you were conscious of that. That that was what's what was driving your decision. I'm guessing that's not no, what you told lot, your dad. Though. No, no, a lot of this is unpacking <laughs> yeah. later on in life. Okay. So, so, uh, so what were you telling people the reasons were that you were joining the army back then? Oh, it's what I wanted to do. But back then, the way I saw what I wanted is, and this is the other reason for why I had worked in the mines, I'd worked on the oil rigs, and I was on. Be like, mate, what's tougher than that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've dude, got to keep up in the ante. I was like 18 and 19, and I am on massive coin. I'm like living the dream. I'd come home, I'd be working away for two weeks, come home for a week, or two weeks on, two weeks off, depending on which one I was working at. And I was a massive coin. But when I come home and I would speak to my mates, or my mates would ask me, I'd be like, hey guys, like, what have you been up to? And this became one of my most hated expressions in the English language. Mm. Oh, yeah, you know, same old. Mm. I'm like, is that all there is to life? Mm. You live your own little journey and uh, everything you dedicate like eight, nine hours a day to the entire thing, all you can give me is same old. And it really really agitated me because I'm like, there's more to life than same old. And so for me, I wanted stories. I wanted adventure. I wanted to actually live. Mm. And so, and part of you wanted a, a legend as well. And then there you got that side of it. I was like, I wanted to do, and and I saw the army and that. And I guess like as a young boy, I was I loved playing my little army figurines. Never would have thought I would join. Mm. But the classic, you know, you were looking for adventure. You yeah. were, you were seeking something other. Something bigger. You wanted to travel. Yeah, I wanted to travel. But yeah, yeah, you're completely, I guess, ignorant to the realities. It's like why people smoke, even though all the science and everyone knows. You never think it's going to happen to you. Mm. Um, once I joined the military, I excelled. I, I was still working in the oil rigs. I joined as a reservist. And then during reservist, I was like, I'm home. 
this is me I'm getting screamed at and stuff but i was like there was something homely that was a camaraderie and a mateship a bond between everyone around you and i was just like this is epic you like that feeling i like that it was there was none of this isolation mm. individualism it was all so it gave you that whole, community that community yeah and that is what i loved that's what i chased mm. and so yeah um for new excelled in um kapuka um was got like, skill at arms award excelled in my ietes my initial employment training to become a combat engineer um soldier of merited that one that was that my, my corporals were like nathan and your parents coming to the march out i was like hell no march out is the crap is stupidest thing i've ever seen i'm like because we got to watch other ones and i was like and then after about over a week they kept asking me my parents coming and then one of the corporals came up there like our instructors came up like nathan you're fucking missing the point mate you've won the soldier of merit get your bloody parents up here to watch you get the award all right and i was like <laughs> what <laughs> You're like, well, since there's an achievement involved, <laughs> yeah, everyone like, can come. Dad, <laughs> you, you, you got to drive up from Adelaide. You got 48 hours to get to Sydney, and he's like, yeah. oh, "I'm there." Because he, my dad's really proud. Mm. Um, having, and so he showed pride in those situations, sure, uh, through his actions, but not through his words yet. Okay, no, it, uh, it would take to a, a tough a nut far, to crack. It would take a far <laughs> bigger extreme to finally get that one. Wow. So before you got to this point. Why, as a young man who'd never been tested by life, did you think that you could go and be a soldier? You tell yourself, I, st- I can still see myself sitting in Kapuka having this conversation with someone. You tell yourself, I believe that when push comes to shove, I could pull the trigger. Chances are anyone who comes up to you says, oh, yeah, I'll pull the trigger no matter what. Like, yeah, and that, they're real cocksure about it. They're the ones you got to look out for in the battlefield because they're the ones who probably crumble. Anyone with a level head realizes the reality of what they're being asked to do. Why did you think you could pull the trigger? You had a sense? Yeah. I knew that it would be hard. I knew it would be challenging, but I believed that I had it in me to do what is necessary in order to fulfill, I guess, the legacy that our forebears had left and the Anzac spirit and what they had to do. I'm like, if this is what my country is asking of me to do, then I will do it. And at the time, it's partly of for your country but then when it, you come to war and you get to war it becomes that of your um, protecting your mates that is all you stand for and it's you realize hard and fast it's either you protect them or because of your hesitation you lose a mate and so you you make a very snap decision and you learn to defy your morals your upbringing your traditions yeah your morality in order to fulfill a job that uh, is very difficult to truly understand unless you've well, you been can't, there. can't. Yeah. There's no way the civilians could understand it. But it's, um, I guess that's what I try to do these days, is try to inform that a lot of these decisions aren't clear cut. Mm. Like when you've got a split second to make a decision between life and death, I'm like, when have you ever been put in that situation? Were you seeking to be tested? Oh, yeah, 100%. I just, I wanted to be put in the thick of it. Mm. And I, because in the end, I remember. And you had 100% strike rate too, right? So (laughs) you you probably thought you couldn't fail. Yeah, 100%. But I want to be put in the thick of it because I wanted to test myself. And I had no idea what I was made of. I knew the world was bigger than me. Hence why I chose to put my hand up and surf. I want to be a part of something bigger. I knew the world was not my little, own little bubble. 
And so by the time I got to um, my regiment up in Darwin, after about four months, I realized a lot of people there weren't up there to achieve much more than bare minimum. Mm-hmm. And I'd just come out of working on the mines and the oil rigs, working 12-hour full hardcore days. And I'm like, there's people, I'm being paid to sit there on oil shovels. And I was like, this is like absolutely like messing with my self-worth. A call came out to join the at the Special Operations Engineers Regiment, which was formerly known as the Incident Response Incident Response Regiment, um, to join them. And I put my hand up, and I never forget what happened. I was like, I went up to my sergeant. I was like, Sarge, I want to go to the, I want to go to Sower, and he's like, No. <laughs> he goes because in the in the military for the first year, once you get in, you're on your L's. Once you get off your L's, you're called private proficient. You're proficient at being a soldier. Yep. And the first year, you're pretty much on your L's. He goes, mate, you've been here for four months, and you want to go join an SF unit. That I was like, yes. <laughs> and he's like, no. He goes, you got to do your time. And I was like, bullshit. And I literally hounded him and hounded him. And he goes, if you come back to me in six weeks and you still feel the same way, come with me with a formal letter of... Uh, asking your, your desire to join, and then we'll go from there. And so six weeks on the dot, I rocked back up on his doorstep. He's like, get out. Are you serious? But then at that time, a lieutenant had come into the um, regiment, and he was now one of our senior um, officers. And he was the same officer who I went through IETs with that I soldier, got the soldier of merit for. And he vouched for my uh, competency and so before I knew it, I got accepted to try out, did all the physical, psychological screening. And then before I knew it, by April 2009, so I joined, uh, went to Kapuka February 08. By April 09, I was standing within SF. Th- then I did Tag East. So that my first year there was Tag East, so Tactical Assault Group, East Coast. So it's like military domestic counterterrorism on onshore. So it's like... I don't know, the military version of SWAT. Um, do you know like, the Lint Cafe siege? And yeah. they wanted to send all the, yeah, um, the, the military guys in. They were us that they wanted to send in. Anything serious go down with that? Nah, that not much, not much. But it's uh, very disciplined. Like the tempo was relentless. Like mm. boom, boom, like job after job after job. Training, 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 That's training, what you training, liked. training. Yeah. And I'm like, you never knew where you're going to be. Um, you're always on the move, always doing stuff. And then as soon as you finish, then we were on the dry for most of it as well. So we couldn't even drink for nearly a year, apart from every like couple of months when our officers, our bosses would come up to us and say, guys, like nothing is going to happen this weekend. Wink, wink. <laughs> and everyone just go out and just get like, because we're young. Yeah. Like, I was like early 20s. Yeah, it's a big sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and so that's when you'd make the most of it. And then bef- after a year of that, told that we were deploying. And so we did um, pre-deployment training, learned how to find bombs buried in the ground. Um, so the search and clearance of improvised explosive devices. And how many did they have doing that sort of training? Because I imagine it'd be pretty specialised. Uh, well, at the time, it was still like IED warfare really only came in like mid-thousands, 2005, six onwards. But it was like sporadic as well. Like there was one or two here and there and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't until about 2009 when it really started to ramp up. So mm. it was, although we were trained to do it, it was still a, um, we were trained in mine warfare. So it was part of our job description to be, to fulfill this role. But it was um, in Afghanistan per se, it still wasn't a 
it only really started to rear its ugly head in about 2009. Um, And so, yeah, we ended up going and then um, down to a lot warmer and all sorts of different places to do all that training and all that because... um, and I think there was a period of time there. I think I was I was home for about three months out of over three years. Did you mind? No, I didn't have a partner. But I'm like, you wonder why relationships are so put on edge when yeah. you join the military. Mm. Um, oh, sorry, over two years. Yeah, three months over two years. Um, and what did that? What did this all do for your ego? I grabbed hold of the soldiering identity. That's yeah. be, that's I became a soldier. Mm. Nathan Bolton, I am a soldier. And this is what I do. Now, how much do I you think that's necessary? Definitely it's not necessary, but to buy into it really, it enables you to let everything else go. And you become a great soldier because you've got no other th- beliefs or thought patterns. Mm. So it served me very well on the battlefield. Yeah, um, you're just part of the unit, and you, yeah, you've yeah, got that, that's, your that's, teammates back, and that's that is it. all you are. Yeah. You're there for your mates, and you're there for your job role. Mm. Very important, um, and that's where they try to get you to. Yes, hundred yeah. um, so, percent. So, so trying to um, chip away at any sort of indi- individuality and largely get rid of that. Hundred percent. Yeah, they're trying to unify you. Mm. Everyone needs to be on the same page. Orders become the new truth. Like, in the end, my truth is your orders. And your orders are whatever your opinion is. But that becomes a truth for me if you give me an order. Now, there's times on the battlefield where I was ordered to do things and you're like, I was found my... We, we ended up walking into an ambush because we were ordered to. And we were looking at each other going, why are we doing this? And there was this officer sitting up in his little hilltop with his binoculars going, oh, yes, 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 oh, go down this way. We're like, no, we know there's an ambush down there. And he's like, no, 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 I order you. Go, go clear that area. And I still remember looking at patrol command, and I'm like, we're like, is he for serious? But in the end, it was an order. So he did it. So he did it, and we got ambushed. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go down? Oh, it, was like, it, was, it wasn't massive. It was just a small one. But, um, yeah, they, they took their shot and... Um, we all got out of it but it's important you can't take away the importance of orders and why they become a truth is because in the end I am on the ground in my one area that is all I know he is sitting up there having a full landscape look at everything that's going on I don't know exactly what is happening and so if I don't fulfill my duties and what I'm told to do that may impact and threaten the lives of those somewhere yeah, else. It's the domino effect. You're, 100%. You all have to have each other's backs and do what you're told based on ranking. The, the way it's set up is like that for a reason because each individual can't see the whole picture and try to think about how it all fits together. It's too Very much. You so. just have to do whatever's in front of you. Very much so. But that's got to be <clears throat> easier said than done sometimes. Sometimes it and is. And that's why I would have to be so drilled into you before you go and get deployed because when you get asked to do something that if you weren't so trained and you weren't of that mind, you might really question or falter or freeze yeah. and you die potentially. If you question... Or your, or your mates die. Yeah. If you question hierarchy, it's called insubordination and you can get charged for it. You're not allowed to lip back to hierarchy. Mm. How do you remember feeling when you touched down for your first tour? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's... Uh, and was there... What, is, what, what song was playing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah, my first tour. Um, so, yeah, did pre-deployment training, got everything all sorted. I had landed in 
Afghanistan. I'll never forget the dirt runway. The rear tailgate of the Hercules opens up and you've got all your body armor on, all your hat and you're like... Um, your helmet and all that and you're coming out of all your bags and all your crap and you're just like the 50 degree heat just like, like just like belted you and you're just like holy crap it's hot um and then you look around it's just like a desert and then you see these huge mountains just like lining the landscape and then you see these green patches all the way through and you're just like holy crap and then you look around, then you look down and lower, and all you see are these like two-story Hessian sand wall, like big Hessian bags, like two stories high, surrounding you. And you realise, shit, like, that's to stop like RPGs and machine gun fire. And you know, your reality hits you like, man, I'm at war. This is it. Um, are you excited about oh, that? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, well, I and this is where I would never forget because my parents dropped me off at the airport, leaving to go back to Sydney to deploy, to then go. And my parents said, oh, Nathan, will come in and walk you to your to the, to the plane sort of thing. And I was like, oh, no, 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 all good, don't worry about it. Oh, no, no, we're coming, we're coming, we'll park up, we'll come in, we're coming in. And all I remember is walking along that little uh, terminal thing onto the plane and seeing, I turned around and my mum is just like bawling her eyes out. And my dad is just like standing there, just like, like waved, but it was just standing there. And I'm like, Uru, like, see you later. I'm off. No dramas. All the best. I'll see you soon. Only later in life do I ever look back and actually unpack what actually happened in that moment. That was for them potentially the last time they're ever going to see their son. I was so excited to be going off to war because that's like the grand final, like, you train in any sport or anything you want to go and play yep going to war is for a soldier to go and play and actually test and test it out like okay there's a lot at stake but it's um we all want to go out and Mm. prove our worth what else are you training for yeah and so yeah little did i know what that what happened then but Mm. i got a letter and your dad still didn't hug you i got a letter in the mail probably about a weekend from him yeah. And I'll never forget what happened in that letter, what I read that day. And I said, along the lines of, it was like a lot of, there was a lot of things I've wanted to say over the years. And he goes, I'm so proud to have you as my son. Like a, a father could not be more proud. So Godspeed, my warrior son, for your safe return. <laughs> Yeah, like goosebumps just thinking about because I'm like that was the first time I've ever got that out of. I still got the letter at home. That's how much it meant to me. Did that fired you up? I or were you like, well, we've achieved it. We can go home. No, no. (laughs) I was. It probably drove me even more Hmm. because suddenly I am like you're the warrior son now. Yeah, and yeah. I've uh, my dad said he was proud, and I have finally fulfilled that one thing, and now I'm here doing this, and I'm like, I am gonna give it all I've got, and so that tour ended up being um, vehicle insertions all around the country in Aruzgan province. On the average tour, I guess. Uh, Teams might encounter two or three of these hidden bombs, these IEDs buried in the ground. 
um, but my tour ended up being pretty far from ordinary. My team alone found, I think it was over 20 of IEDs. And you were finding some of them yourself? Oh, yeah. No, it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Just explain how one finds an IED. Uh, uh, see, I can feel the sweat coming out of my hand now. All this stuff just like lights you up like a Christmas tree. I'll never forget my first one. We're in this VDO, so vehicle drop-off. So imagine you've all the vehicles parked up in a big circle late at night, and so you, and that's where you're going to sleep for the night. And so yep. you've got lookouts in every direction. We slept up there, and the next morning came past, and uh, a call comes over the radio. And the call comes in saying, oh, well, you guys are in this vicinity. Would you guys go clear Route Monkey? Instantly at that time, we, we all knew exactly what we were talking about. He comes up to us and goes, all right, guys, we're going to go clear this track. And we're like, What? Well, <laughs> no, because we all knew what um, this what this route was. The Americans were asked to clear it; they refused. The Brits were asked to clear it; they refused. The Dutch, well, they definitely didn't want to do it. And so here's our Alpha going, yeah, yeah, us Aussies will go clear it. It was a highway laden with IEDs, <laughs> like eight kilometer. So what start what started was an eight kilometer route search. So we're using our metal detectors and you're pretty much going cruising along using your metal detector. You got about. 300 mil head so a 30 centimeter head so like a ruler and now you have to try to cover eight kilometers of road and make sure you don't hit anything and the objective obviously is to find them all clear it so that that route can then be used can then be again. used yeah and yep. the chances are they'll then bury a new one in there once we've gone through but in the end at least we've gone through and shown that we 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 mean business and you can't stop us mm. so just explain the mechanics of how an ied gets set off so you got the main explosive part, the package. That's that's, that's the bomb part. The like part parcel that bomb. Yeah, that was like this big picture, like a jerry can, like one of the big twenty liter jerry cans. Um, now fill that with explosive. So when you that's that's a lot of bang. Oh, that would that that would level one of our bushmasters. It would keep us alive inside, but it would level it, it would destroy it. And then you got the battery pack because you need. Because for the detonator that goes into the explosive part needs a, a signal, needs an electrical current, and then you got the switch. So, and literally that is just—they uh, were amazing. They could use anything. Sometimes we found big saw blades, and with um, so all you need to do is connect. So have obviously your current going from one side to the other, and you just need metal to touch metal. You need to close that switch. So imagine two pieces of timber like that. Mm. And then you've got little little chocks on either side, and then in the middle it flexes a bit. So and that's where you have whatever it is, pieces of metal, and you've got the battery terminals coming to either side. And all you got to do is close that, and then it will set off. Once the metal touches the metal, it all sets off, like it, like any light switch. And but these are real like made out of your garage sort of spec. We get to this um, bridge, and I'm like, got my metal detector. And it was a concrete bridge. And so I walk up towards it and woo, 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 like the thing, that's the noise it makes. Oh man, it pisses you off after a long, but you get used to it. And because the bridge was full of Rio, the concrete was full of Rio. And so literally my metal detector became like completely useless. And obviously you're not going to bury anything in concrete. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, <laughs> sweet, no dramas. But on the, on the other side, you couldn't see where it ended. Mm. And all I remember seeing in, in, in hindsight, so this is like, look back now in hindsight, I remember seeing it, but I didn't register it consciously at the time. And in the creek bed, in the distance, I, all I remember seeing was this palm oil container. So instead of water, Jerry's, like we'd, we'd know them, they use palm oil containers. This big yellow thing, and it was like torn to pieces, sitting in the creek. 
and right now I can literally see it and I'm like instinctually I saw that even though consciously I was not consciously aware that I'd seen it and paid any attention to it but something in me told me that something's not right with that and so I got to the other side of the bridge and I'm like searching woo, 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 and I'm like t- I pop down a knee feel my hand into the dirt and constantly feeling my hand into the dirt and nothing there take a knee woo, 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 woo. And, I'm, and I did it like five or six times and suddenly he's this little one I was like what the hell was that and I was like and, and but I've been through five or six um, and all I remember is my hand running in the, on the hard dirt surface and then just disappeared into this like cavern this hole of loose dirt it's like going straight into like loose sand mm. and as my hand slipped in there suddenly I hear this coke bottle cracking so do you know one of those real cheap plastic bottles you buy from like on the run or something like that Imagine the uh, bottle just the snapping noise. the snapping noise of the bottle just starting to crack, and I could feel it, and I just froze. <laughs> I was like, oh! I literally, I like this is the first one that our tour had found. We yeah. didn't, we didn't even know what it Your was at the moment. Behind you, yeah, everyone's in the cars behind me and all that sort of stuff while I'm going over. So I was the first one over doing all the initial clearance and. Lucky and then, you. Yeah, <laughs> it's always you're like, why am I always uh, first? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got live with the lucky charm, mate. Because yeah, we always we always found him when I was around, which is pretty funny. I was like, oh crap! And I slowly started backing my hand out, and you could hear the bottle like, like trying to retaking its shape. I didn't know what it was at the time, but to my when I heard it, I was like, it sounded like a plastic bottle. And I'm like slowly pulling out, and then I do this basic clearance, and I'm looking around, and I suddenly I see this um, top of the bottle like. One of those little little drink bottles upside down. And I'm like, and as soon as I saw that and uncovered the top of that, I look, I just take a step back and you literally, you can see the entire ID laid out. Although it's all buried, but you can see it laid out. Because you're looking for like anything that like um, distinguishing features, lines, like dug out dirt. That's what you become very good at seeing disturbed earth. And I'm like, I could see it all laid out and I'm like, sweet, like, Terry, you're up, mate. So I was like, <laughs> and he's just like, oh yeah, it's like because it's the first one, man. Everyone was really excited, um, and so he came down, and I went back to the car. I was like, well, I'm just gonna crack open a can of can of coke, and I'm like, oh, I need to uh, try to calm calm the farm down. Like oh, I was like running on hyperdrive right now, and yeah, he yeah. went down there, did the. Uh, so he laid all the counter explosives, and then he did a pull of the actual pressure plates because we want to, we want because with the tape, like we try to get fingerprints and all sorts of stuff. So we want to try to find out who who's been doing it. Mm-hmm. But basically, that guy comes through, puts explosives and, on and the explosives, blo- and, and then blo- detonates that, it. Yeah. But then he, we got the we got the switch back, and he showed me the switch, the thing that I'd crushed, and it was a plastic bottle upside down with a a copper nail in the top, and then about. Uh, and then a, another copper plate underneath it with about five mil gap. Oh, so it's something like that. So it would take nothing. So it would take nothing to set up. But because I came in sideways, like we're trying to do, all that happened was a boop, boop. So it, went, <laughs> it needed less than like half a kilo. But if, if, you come that, up, if you come over, if I went even straight with your hand. down, even with my hand, it probably would have set it off. Um, and so I was like, yeah, and 20 kilos of explosive to a human being is, yeah, I don't really need to explain the, uh, what that 
looks like. So, but so then did you have to go through the rest of the trench like after they detonate the first one? Does that take out a few well, others? No, nah, it didn't set off anything. We found another eight that day. Like you learn how to like swing a metal detector and make sure, because in the end, your lives at stake and your mates' lives at stake. So you don't want to miss anything. We cemented our relationship with the commandos that day to some degree, because before that they thought we were slow and taking our time and doing nothing, and they thought that we were a waste of time. And then by the end of 2014, we became one, a very revered and renowned group of guys. What was the most significant thing that happened in that first tour? While we were driving along, so we were the lead vehicle, a commander calls up, searches out, and so we put our body armor on and went to step out of the vehicle, and he goes, oh, no, guys, don't worry about it. And it was an unusual call, but in the end, it was it is what it is. We sat back down, the vehicle started back up, we started driving, and our car exploded. Uh, yeah chaos mate literally everything just went black it was so violent um where were you in the car i was uh seat two near the middle um and the ied the bomb hit the back left tire everything went black and you, you, have, you have no idea if you're alive or dead you can't see the dust it was like bit pitch black you can't see I was covered in can of Coca Cola, like cans of soft drink had like exploded in the car. <laughs> so I was covered in sticky shit. Um, Did it flip or anything? No, no, no. These vehicles are huge, like big, big vehicles. Is this the Bushmaster? The Bushmaster, and they're designed to take an impact of about twenty kilos. So we are. Um, so like you said, it leveled the vehicle, but yeah. you survived. Yeah, but I'll never forget my mate who was on the rear gun. So he was sitting up on the top of the vehicle, manning the... Up the top. Up yeah. the top, manning the gun on top of the wheel that exploded. And i never forget him as he fell in through the roof. Uh, just gasping for air. Just eyes wider than like, the black of night. Just like stare, just uh, deep into like, nothingness. <laughs> One moment we're on the verge of sleep and the next we're on the edge of death. And man, like, fuck, I was only 22. Did he die that day? No. Um, and that's the, the amazing thing. It's just uh, um, how much, how dependent we became and how important those Bushmasters were and how well-built they were. Um, so they saved a lot of lives. Um, so, yeah, that was first tour. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I got. I got to stop talking about it somewhere because a lot happened on that first tour. But in the end, it's um, it was pretty good. When you got home, how much did it play on your mind, especially that event you just spoke about? Um, it didn't. Yep. But with that said, there was a two-week period when I first got home, and I became very angry. And almost wanting to be violent. Why do you think that was? At the time, I had no idea. All I remember was at Cronulla, Northies, when it happened. When it first set off, it was like probably been home for like two days. And I hadn't gone back to Adelaide yet or anything like that. I was still in um, Sydney. And I just saw this one guy smack his mate over the back of the head with a like 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 it's like a baker's tray like a metal baker's tray and then they're all laughing like 
and the, the fighting each other and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, you guys have no idea, sort of. You have yeah. no idea what guys sacrifice for you guys to act like complete and utter dickheads. And I'm look, and I looked at it in absolute disgust. And it set something off in me that I didn't know what it was at the time. But I was so angry and I wanted to call up a mate, but I didn't want to call my mate because I'd just been stuck in a room, like no bigger than like probably like four by four square meters with like six dudes all jammed in there. Like you got like one meter, one and a half meters by like two meters each or something like that. That was your room for the last like seven months. And you're jammed into this bigger room using curtains, using like a bed sheet as a door to give you just an element of privacy. Like you've been so confined with these guys. You're like, the last thing that person wants to hear from me right now, hear from is me. But then at the same time, when you actually spoke to the couple of guys later on in life, they're like, mate, all I want to do is see you guys. Because you'd become so dependent, so reliant. You were, you were like living in each, other, each other's pockets. Because you had to be. Yeah. But yeah, but but at that time, I was everyone. No one was calling each other. No one was speaking because everyone thought they were over each other. It was such a contradiction. It was amazing. I called one of my mates up and he calmed me down, and life sort of just got back to sort of some, some sort of semi-normal. I managed to hide it for long enough, and after about two weeks of went back to sydney and then i had enough on my plate again and suddenly all those problems disappeared so you had this sort of simmering yeah. rage inside yeah. you but you didn't get why no not at that time i had no idea what it was at the time mm. um and so and i managed to suppress it for long enough until i had enough distraction in order to keep me moving yeah and it was the case that whenever you were busy enough, you were all good. Because if you had tasks to focus on and other people to think about, then that's that was your sweet spot. Oh yeah, because could you, you? And that's the thing. Everyone goes, oh, like, what did you stop and think about what you were doing overseas? Hell no. I'm like, if you knew the tempo that we're working at, like some days on that first tour, we were going for like sometimes 14 days at a mm. time, living out of rat packs and out of the side of a vehicle. And stopping to think is not going to do you any good. No. Probably in that scenario. No, 100%. And then the two days, three days or something that you might have off, you just, you go to the gym, you play Call of Duty. We had a massive system link Call of Duty. It's funny because it's, I actually look at that. I'm like, wow, it's serious. Like, yeah. But in the end, we didn't have much else to really do. I was really bad at Call of Duty. Sure, yeah. Could Which not is, play Call of Duty. Same you're like, myself. I hope I'm better in real life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is this respawn reset button? Yeah, no, there's no a, respawn uh, button. No, so it's... Um, um, and But then I got home, done all that. But then I was like, I'm going to go off and do SAS selection. Imagine 21 days of sheer mental and physical hell where you're tested like well beyond what you deem to be your limits. I guess you can call it voluntary uh, self-destruction or mm. to stand um, alongside the, the elite of special forces. So just summarize what they did to you over that three weeks. Um, so I, first 10 days or so, it's like, um, you do a lot of like um, a lot of PT, um, like hours and hours on end. You do you get you're not you don't get minimal sleep. You get woke up in the middle of the night to do massive like tests and memory tests and maths tests, doing like algebra and long division and all sorts of stuff. Like you're looking at you're like 
I don't know any of this. You're learning t- uh, a language whilst you're actually doing that as well. You got to learn a language, and which will come to play later on. Are they testing how well you can think when you're rattled? Or, yeah, yeah. They want to. They're trying to. Their, their goal is to break you down, and then see what you're made of, and then see your le- your ability to problem solve, your ability to stay connected and work as a team, make sure that you're not bearing an ego that is going to become very individualistic out in the thing when you're pushed to your limits you, they want to make sure that you are, will still work as part of the team even when you've got nothing left mm. um and so yeah i lost like just the brutality of this course like so that was the first 10 days the next five days you do like a um happy wanderer and you i think about 60 kilos in my back and I think I covered a bit. Um, you get given a compass, a grid reference of where you are and where you need to go, and off you go. And like my first checkpoint was like 25 kilometers away, and you're using a map and a compass trying to look for an army vehicle camouflaged 25 k's away. Um, and when you want to phase out, you can't because you've got to be able to count your steps because you, how how far do you know you've been? You don't have GPSs. You got to count each step, and I knew that every 3,200 steps, I'd cover approximately two kilometers. Shit. Right, so and you so got to stay focused on, on that the whole step, time. Yeah, and they got little counting beads, so you keep pulling your counting beads down, uh, and that's how you stay yeah. on top of it. And then the last five days you do, it's called uh, Lucky Dip. There's nothing lucky about it, and you just get absolutely pummeled. Karen, you just, like, minimal food, like, no food almost, apart from day three. Um, this is when they just flatten you. Yeah. And you're literally like, this is breaking point, like where you're given nothing. I lost 15 kilos in 21 days. And yes, I was looking shredded. <laughs> it's ready for stereos, yeah. I reckon. <laughs> but I was pretty malnourished, mate. So it's um, but at the end of the course, out of the 120 soldiers who were at the peak of their game, who started, I'm not to go there to have the audacity to attempt SS selection is like massive. But to finish it, very few people do. And out of the 120 that started, only 28 of us were left standing near the end. You look at your mates, you don't even recognise them. Like their cheeks are like sucked into their cheekbones. There's like not an ounce of fat on anyone. Mm. Like people have lost immense amounts of weight. But you're proud. You had just completed one of the toughest courses in the world. And you always had this little piece of paper in your pocket. Because no matter how hard or how difficult or how tired you got, if you want it to end, all you have to do is pull this piece of paper out of your pocket and sign it. And it pretty much said, I quit. And if you sign that paper, all the pain will stop. They'll feed you. They'll let you sleep and all that. And this is the thing. And so you had that playing on your mind the entire time that, that it could all <laughs> And they end. put it in your pocket on purpose. Yeah, and yeah, you're, yeah. you're not allowed to not have it. Yeah, I love that. And you see people <laughs> literally snap in a moment and out of impulse, yeah. sign it. Mm. And then within and then 20 regret it. Oh, and the regret. Like, dude, mm. breaking down. How close did you get? Um, nothing. I actually never pulled it out. I was so. Yeah, you, you were going to die I was before ex- you were going to do I that. I was exhausted. But I am like a, an old Massey Ferguson tractor. <laughs> I am not the fittest. What a description. I am not the fastest, but I can plot along. 
and I'll just keep on turning. Like the the gears will keep turning. I'm not like a Ferrari. Do you work this in with the ladies? Yeah. This, is, this <laughs> yeah. is great material. Go, come here, bring them. Yeah, Massey's out. There's uh, you're like you're I, like, I, I know the Ferrari looks <laughs> good, but have you considered the tractor? The big diesel engine, smoke blowing everywhere, just plodding the, the, along. <laughs> They don't know where I'm doing wrong with the ladies. So. <laughs> By that point, you, if you wanted to test your metal, the, there's nowhere else to go but there on the extreme end of the spectrum, and you did it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I was so proud to have finished it. You actually didn't even trust the instructors when they told you it was over. Because nah. you're like, nah, you guys, are, you guys are having a sign. You see some of the guys, like, is this like no duff? Like, no yeah. duff? And the guys are like, yeah, no duff. Like, yeah. And he must have entered this strange kind of delirious state. Oh yeah, there's there well was, into that, yeah. Oh yeah, there's I think it was like one of the days I think I covered eight kilometers and I was I wasn't even there. Suddenly yeah. I came to And you're counting I'd, as I'd, well. I'd walked over a hill yeah. down the other side and I had no recollection of the last three hours. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, Wow. So then um, second tour you went back with the SAS? No, so what happened there was about half an hour later. We had our debrief and like our personal evaluations. I remember sitting there in the room feeling proud and confident. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm never, he goes, Nathan, the panel do not find you suitable to continue into the next phase. <laughs> and I'm like, that still gets me to this day. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm like, you literally gave it your all and finished. And then just like that, this guy sitting right across, he just says, no, you're not good enough. How did you respond to that? That moment became one of the greatest battles in containing emotions that I'd ever faced to that day. Like, oh, and your internal side begins screaming at the thought that you're not good enough. Like I'd always strove to be the very best and suddenly found out that I wasn't the man that I once believed I was. But you did it. You did the work. But he didn't tell me that I was good enough. Did and I say I, why? And I allowed someone else's judgment of myself to become a, become a dictator of who I am. Mm. Did they tell you why? Um, they said you had amazing problem-solving abilities under extreme pressure and all that sort of stuff, even when you're delirious. Although a lot of the times the guys didn't listen to you. Um, I guess I wasn't being verbal enough i wasn't being i was because i was i was trying to hold it all together myself like i'm not gonna lie like i was in pretty bad shape but i got through it but i apparently had a communication issue you had to rate your mates and i thought everyone was epic except this one guy and i thought it was a loud mouth and super arrogant over three times we did it i, I kept saying it's a piece of shit and then at the end he got in and i didn't so you think that's what it was that really pissed me off but then three months later, he got shunned by the rest of the guys. And then within six months or five, four months, he was um, the instructor saw and he was booted off course for being a piece of shit. And I'm like, I was delirious. And I told you, I could have told you that. But in the end, yeah. So I got, I, I, I got a little bit of satisfaction out of him not getting, uh, getting, getting booted. But yeah, I'm you, like, you, you wasted a spot on that guy and I told you that. Yeah, and you didn't get a phone call saying uh, we were wrong? No, no, not at all, not at all. So it's um, once you're out, you're out. Once you're done. They asked me to come back, so they were obviously happy with what I did, but in the end they asked me to come back, and that was it. Usually once you've done it once, they don't let you come back for at least three years. Sometimes they say don't ever come back, 
but in that moment having been removed from that not being accepted i guess that um rattled me um well you, i guess i was not the suddenly i found out i was not the man that i once believed i was and the, i guess the success that i expected myself to achieve do you consider that your first true failure i had failed even though you had done it so it's bullshit yeah. objectively it's like, <laughs> are you kidding but in the end nothing else matters unless how you subjectively experience it mm. and to me the guys that i idolized and i wanted to be a part of them they were the judge of who i am you'd fail in their eyes and so to me i'd failed i had did not have the skill set to know that although i wasn't good enough for them that doesn't mean i'm not a good i'm not good enough as a man or not good enough as a soldier i just didn't have a perspective at that time mm. i allowed them to dictate my own beliefs of myself and i returned home to sydney a rattled shell of my former self and it became like a shift in my own beliefs of who i am because you weren't in control what, then yeah and what i believed i could achieve um yes i lost control of who i am because when you allow others to dictate that oh, and your, yeah. your self-worth and yeah. you put all the weight on how yeah. you're viewed and, and what others tell you you are, yeah. then you no longer are in control of yourself. No. So, yeah. So yeah. was that, that, that anger, did that rear its head again then when you were back in Sydney? No, because within about a month of getting home, although congratulated by everyone... I was back on pre-deployment training and I was redeployed back to Afghanistan like five months later. Yeah. And I was like, if anything was going to redeem my sense of pride and being mad, I was oh, like, yeah. war! I can, <laughs> war would be its maker. That's the best for that, isn't it? <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah. I can, uh, I can just imagine the intensity that would have been within you going back for the second time after being told you weren't good enough yeah, by the SAS yeah. guys. And that was, and that, and it was, and I went back there and like, I just, I was going to fulfill my job to the utmost. Um, and then on this tour, and instead of doing the vehicle operations, it was predominantly like helicopter insertions onto known Taliban stronghold. Did you notice that it felt different to the first time? That you were different? No. it. A lot of what happened, the big shifts happened on the second tour. But everything that happened was priming. There was this, I was beginning to be worn down. And then what happened, and then obviously what happened in selection and all that, and then, and then what happened on my second tour, that is what just just completely clicked me over. Mm. Walk us through that night in the trench. Hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. It hurts every time I go into it. Like it, I, There comes a point in time where I just, it wears me down. Um, so I was about... Um, 2 a.m. Minus 10. Like water bottle, like snap froze in your pocket. Um, I was top of, top of this hill. I was called forward by the commandos that I was working with. And they're like, bolts, you're up. And at the top of this hill, you s suddenly I walked to the front of the, the, the group and there was this trench system just stretching across the top of this hill. And through you, all you could see was through the shade, your night vision goggles, so shades of green, green and black. And I was like, you want to feel dread. 
Imagine knowing that you're about to climb into this trench and search it for IEDs. But then um, my briefing, standing there before I'd got in, my briefing came through, the mission the orders group came through, and they're like, and I got they came up to me and they're like, Bolts, we know there's IEDs in there. So obviously, like, keep your wits about you, mate. So like, yeah, my wits are about me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but then I got my own, I got an intelligence brief. And now, like, bolts. We know that they know our TTPs, our procedures. You are about to use a metal detector to find bombs that have no metal in them. Godspeed. <laughs> Welcome to the worst night of my life. <laughs> Oh, shit. So did you ask, uh, how, um, how am I supposed to find him? No, how's my job? Not his worry. So yeah, I was climbing through and it was so cold. I was on my hands and knees slowly climbing my way through and I had my little um, IED hunting tool. Who needs a mine product or military military issued equipment when you can go to Bunnings and get a old garden rake with the old prong thing that was my ID hunting tool of choice nothing the more old, Aussie than that the more the Bunnings the Bunnings special mate that's uh, that's grab that's, a snag while you're there <laughs> ground off a couple of things I was like yeah mate that's a IED 101 and I was going through and but the ground had literally snapped frozen nearly an inch thick and so literally I had to swing and crack the top surface of the dirt to see what was underneath it which if you're not trying not, not to set off Oh yeah, uh, there, there, is, is there, is, there is so much. There is so much happening in this trench this night. Like I am just like, there is like full of brass. There was a gunfight in there about six months earlier, full of brass, where one of my mates was killed. And so now that's running through my head as well. And so I've got all the brass clippings is getting hits on my metal detector, and I'm just like, and you got so much emotion running through you. And I remember I was banging through, banging through, and then I remember seeing this big chunk of dirt break free. So I'm on my hands and knees, I'm on my guts, laying up, propped up on my elbows, and this big chunk of dirt, and I'm like, yeah, capitalize. And with my hook thing, I pulled all the dirt out of the way to move the big chunk of dirt out of the way. And in that backwards motion, suddenly a package the size of a tissue box came flying out of the wall nearly a meter in front of me and landed directly in front of my face. Instantly, in that moment, I knew what it was. It was a battery pack to an IED, um, one of those bombs, and I had committed the biggest sin in dealing with these IEDs and just disturbed it. Man, I just froze. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing can really prepare you for a moment like that, where you've done that. Like every, everything in your training tells you not to, never touch it. And suddenly I just ripped it out of this battery pack. So I just shut down for a little bit, just waited to, to like came to and all that. And finally came to, which felt like a turn. It was probably like 30 seconds before I rationalized and came back into the moment. And then suddenly I see this electrical wire running out of it and did this perfect little loop and was running directly underneath me. While I was laying on the pressure plate and I'd missed it, And I didn't know where it was. And instantly, I'm like, this is it. My number's up. I didn't know what to do. I was alive right now, but the moment I move, I probably won't be. All I knew is that wherever I'm laying on right now, 
is the only thing I know that is safe. Is safe. Um, and so yeah, what took probably a while. <laughs> I finally came to, and but in that moment, that's when I accepted my own death. Like I was just like, this is it. And I was like, and I came to a realization. I was like, Nathan, this is gonna have to play out, whether you like it or not. You can't sit here and lay here forever. You gotta, you got you have to do something. And so I came to, and I was like, well, the most likely place for this bomb to, be, the pressure, the switch to be would be um, centralized to the pit. So what I did, I and I was like, well, if I brace my elbows and my hands and my feet out as wide as I can. I'll get out of the central part of the pit and hopefully in that prevent myself detonating it. And so I braced myself as wide as I can and then managed to do some sort of funky push-up. So my legs, my feet and my hands are pushed right up against the side of the trench and I I was like, I have to lay my knees down because I have to get to my knees. And so then in one foul movement, I threw myself back and I was laying my knees splayed open on the side of the trench. And I got to here, and I'm like, oh, God damn it. And I turned, I mean, all I remember is I turned around and suddenly, suddenly all I, I see five commandos sitting in the trench directly behind me, completely oblivious to what had just transpired. And I'm like, I'll never forget it. Just my jaw was like locked. And it was all through night vision. There's no torches. So I'm doing this all through night vision. And I remember turning around and goes, guys, I'm laying on an IED. Move away now. And I can still see his jaw just go, just drop. And obviously that didn't, didn't have to be told twice. They're like, good luck, mate. They, they, they jump ship real quick. Um, they got the hell out of there and then me being an engineer doing what engineers do best we were all alone left to fend for ourselves and so here i am laying on top of this bomb with absolutely no idea where any of the components are apart from the battery pack that i'd ripped out and i'm like i gotta get out of here and i managed to get to my feet and then in some weird funky motion did some crazy roll commando roll and <coughs> managed to jump out of the trench and I mean, all I remember doing, I stood up and I'm like, woo, that was close. I'm alive. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was like, wow, well, I'm not, stuff that. I'm not dealing with that right now. I'll deal with that in the morning. I ain't going back in there. Um, I'll get a tech up here, like explosive tech to come up and do do his thing. And I was like, easy as, no, no drums. Don't go in there, guys. And so the tech came up in the morning, did all the... Um, laid the counter explosives and all that sort of stuff and uncovered all the componentry turns out that the pressure plate was underneath my chest but i was braced up on my elbows and the plate was only about that wide and so pretty much if i'd taken one more bite further i would have set it off so actually committing the biggest sin and ripping the battery pack out stopped me and actually saved my life and the lives of everyone behind you well that's the thing the explosive wasn't underneath me it was underneath my five mates who were sitting in the trench behind me. And that was the hardest thing for me to deal with, is that I could accept taking the lives of myself, but almost costing the lives of five of my mates due to my inaction. To me, in that moment, I failed. 
But actually the irony is, had you not done that, you would have done it. I did everything I could. I did everything right. I should never have been in that trench in the first place. Never should I have been in there looking for that. But they insisted that we, they wanted to use it. And I it found seems like a suicide mission. Uh, yeah, later on I look back and I'm like, what the hell? And people know that too. Other, No one understands why I was sent in there that night to do that. It was stupid. And isn't it actually looked at as a case of what shouldn't happen? Yeah, so I've heard. So I've heard it was actually was used as a case study. Um, but in the end, I don't know the details. I've never seen it. This is all hearsay. But it's uh, one of those, yeah, one of those nights that um, would never leave me. And for many years, I found myself unable um, to describe what happened. Uh, the dread, the, I don't know, the fear. The unknown, the end, I guess. Yeah, I didn't have any words to make sense of what happened that night. And so I um, did what any bloke believes he should do. And like I'd always done in my past, I buried it. As deep and as distant as I could, out of sight, out of mind, I pushed it deep inside, hoping and believing that it would all just go away. <laughs> but it ironically, it doesn't work like that. I look like an IED. You know, you bury it, try to hide it, leave it there, hope that it will go away, but eventually, eventually, yes, if someone steps on it in the right time, in the right circumstances, it will blow. Mm. And for me, I kept burying and burying and burying, because after, not long after that, one of my mates, good mates, ended up standing on an IED and it detonated. And I was one of the first responders for that. And I guess doing first aid over him, blood and shrapnel wounds just lining his body in his last moments here on this earth I guess he only he laid there he only ever asked for he wasn't laying there asking for like money success a fancy watch or a nice car or any of the materialistic things that so many of us hold of so much value these days now in his last possible moments here on this earth he only ever asked for two things that was his friends and his family and you learn hard and fast at a very young age what is truly important. Money and toys will come and go, but it is your friends and your family that will mourn for your loss. You'll be remembered for the way you made others feel, not the way you treated your toys. And that's where these days I say, like, um, leave a legacy, not a Lamborghini. And for me, that's a lesson that I'll never forget. Do you remember what you said to him in his last moments? He survived, but I still will never forget the last time I saw him on the battlefield. I took the it was, the sun was out, and I took the shade cloth off him that we were using to cover his eyes from the sun. And I was like, "I'll see you next week, mate." All right. And I grabbed him by the hand, and just and that was the last time I saw him until maybe I got back to Australia um, did he survive because of you blow no, his no 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 so he didn't, didn't do any of that um, the, the idea was buried deep enough that it was um, that he copped a lot of the blast wave and the shrapnel but um, he was far enough away that it didn't do that 
so it was more yeah but the the effects of it was still um drastic enough yeah, a couple of guys got yeah, badly injured um so yeah but then by then i was i was on what 24. yeah yeah we had missed by an enemy sniper had rpgs five meters in my head been more gunfights than i can remember been pinned down by enemy gunfire did you pull the trigger i pulled the trigger day that you never forget do what you got to do but i guess for many years after you start contemplating questioning the actions things that you've done whether you had to or not I guess I spent many years trying to find, work out whether I'm still a good person, although I have done bad things. That's where I think the, the moral injury comes into it, because I'm not a I'm not like a highly trained, cold-blooded killer, man. I'm just an ordinary man with a set of skills sent to war to, for my country. And I don't go to war. I don't choose to go to war. Our country sends us to war. But they need people to do it. And I volunteered to do it. Um, so obviously for me being there is on my shoulders. But at the same time, I'm not the one who creates war. Um, that's the political side of the house. You're following orders. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the situation? For what? When you pull the trigger. Ah, oh, it's just... When you're an engineer, <laughs> surrounded by six commandos, and by 9am in the morning, you as the engineer have got 30 bullets left. You know, shit's hit the fan. Like, I'm surrounded by commandos and all. They're, they're, they're shooters. I'm an engineer. My job is to protect them from the, the bombs. I'm always a shooter, but my job is to protect them from the thing I can't see. When it's I'm, a last resort, yeah. Yeah. And so when I've got when I've run out of ammunition... It's on. Yeah, it's been a, been a, been a good morning. Um, <laughs> that's the thing. And then, yeah, the best one was... Me and two guys found ourselves pinned down on the side of this hill... And uh, <laughs> do you know what bullets sound like when they fly over your shoulder? Like, they sound like little bees as they buzz past your face. I'm very grateful that I don't know what that sounds like. <laughs> Imagine yourself hiding behind a rock, no bigger than your mum's watering can, and you got the you got the rounds, and you literally see the rock in front of your face is wobbling back and forth. And I remember looking up at the guy, and I was like, "We gotta get off this hill." All I remember is um, the, one of the guys took seniority is like called out to one of the guys on the ground. He's like, you're up, you're first. And you hear him go, oh, shit. And I'll never forget him when he picked up and started running. And all you can hear is tick, 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 tick. I'm looking over my shoulder, looking, and you just see the rounds. You see the dust kicking up at his feet, and it's just like those rounds coming in like next level. And suddenly he's getting his way down, and I'm like, oh, shit. I'm next. And I'll never forget when I picked up and started running down this scree slope. So it's a real loose, rocky scree slope running down. 
And later on that day, I'd come up and run into one of the other commandos who were working. He goes, Bolts, we could all see it. And when you came running down that hill, it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. I was like, what? What? <laughs> what? What do you mean? He like, it wasn't funny at the time. He, was like, he goes, Bolts, I have never seen so many bullets being shot at one man in all my life. <laughs> I was like, what? I'll never forget that. And I still remember picking up. I'm a big target. And literally, you can just feel them just. And you're looking down at your feet, trying to keep your balance in your feet. And you see. You see the dust spraying all around your feet and everything. And you're just like, how is this dude missing me right now? And you just keep running and you got nothing. Like, I'm not shooting back. I am literally doing everything I can to just get down this hill as fast as I can. And got to the bottom of the hill. I ran into this compound and it was his window aimed at the direction where he's coming from. And I was like, could we still got one more guy to get off the hill? And so I ran around to the window and then I turn around, see my mate running down the hill. And I slowly eased around the window to take this dude out. And suddenly these two rounds just come straight through the window and missed my face by, like, I don't know. It's like you could, I almost felt it. And I turn around, there's a wall right behind me, and you see these two bullet holes right there. And I'm like, oh, God. And I just sat full auto <laughs> out the window. While we try to get our last guy off the hill. And it's like, dang, 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 just trying to keep him down. And yeah, we ended up getting pinned down for like three hours, all hell broke loose. Uh, we couldn't get out. That dude, yeah, he really, he was causing us a lot of grief. Uh, we couldn't find him. Um, what happened in the end? Uh, we ended up having to call like a section attack. And they came in, flanked him, and we had like, mortars i mean um like yeah grenade launchers like dropping grenades on him and tr literally trying to like so that we could get out that's the thing but you blow it off like we all got out alive and you just pay it off and you don't really see the uh the depth of what you actually did in much detail until you actually uh yeah i guess you get more understanding of what the day was like from others than you do yourself um so yeah but then after yeah this the whole day everything just escalated um and then by the time i came home something was wrong it was like this pain that i'd never felt like i was what 24 and um yeah literally just everything just started uh like I, and this wasn't a physical pain. Like this was a pain. It was like something I, I had no understanding of what it was. And I, so I kept trying to push it down and bury it and ignore it. But just I, every now and then I'd be driving home and I'd be suddenly I'd just start screaming in the car. It was like this beast inside me. I had to get it out. I couldn't. I couldn't escape it. And it just kept. And I'd be like punching my steering wheel like just trying to unleash get out of me and i didn't know what it was and so i just i got i got symptomatic relief like literally screaming and punching stuff just to get some freedom from it but it always kept coming back and coming back and then but by the age of 26 and seemingly at random you just have these outbursts it would boil and boil and boil and 
and then suddenly it just get too much. And by age of 26, that's when it literally, um, I was medically discharged from the army. I'd torn multiple ligaments in my hips in my second tour, had bilateral hip surgery, spent a lot of, many months bedridden. You want a lot of time to think for yourself and start hindsight and um, start ruminating in your past. I was like, I was given the perfect opportunity to do that. Not something you've ever been good at. No, another time. And literally, yeah. That I was started, probably scarier to you than a lot of what you went through on the ground. Took more courage for me to face my demons than it ever did to stand firm on the battlefield. Because the things that you can tell yourself... That is the shit that nightmares are made out of. And for me, being diagnosed with PTSD and depression, I'm like, I would deal with the PTSD, that was bad. The depression, having no sense of self-worth or value and, and how horrifically I thought of myself. I hated myself. Even after Sud- everything you'd done. I thought I was worthless, a piece of shit. Suddenly, like the proud, confident man that I once was, I look into a mirror and see the reflection of a man I still knew, but the man underneath was no longer me. I didn't, I didn't know who the hell I was anymore. Suddenly, the thoughts that I'd always trusted and taken me to the pinnacle of success did nothing more than reinforce my own pathetic being, my own weakness, my own fragility that told me I was like, worthless and a failure and a liability to my mates. Like, no, everything I'd done in my past didn't matter. Suddenly, I just absolutely hated myself. had zero self-worth, zero. I just despised it. And then relationships, I could no longer fathom that someone could love me. If you hate yourself and someone tells you that they love you, you can't believe it. Because then you no, you're lying to me because I fucking hate myself. And that's where the old saying goes, you got to love thyself. It's not about loving thy ego. It's about knowing who you are as a person and accepting that as a person and going, if I can't make peace with myself, how can I let anyone else let anyone else in truly? Um, what was at the root of all this? Trauma. That Russian fighting pit broke the camel's back. That was sheer helplessness. Um, and... It took many years to finally bring that one out. Most no one, no one knew what happened that night. None of my mates knew what happened that night. I buried that night with me for years to come. Um, yeah, because you felt guilty about it. Yeah, I was ashamed. Um, but I was also. I couldn't go there. Hurt too much. And I've so I tried to avoid anything that would remind me of it. And every time they come back and it would just like haunt me. Like in the end, like I'll be driving along the freeway or sitting in a cafe and then suddenly something just triggers me. My whole body would light up. Because although I knew rationally that I was sitting in the cafe, your nervous system doesn't know any different. So if your thoughts are playing, replaying that night in that pit, per se... Yeah, it's all real. Then it's, everything's real. Your whole body lights up as though it's there again. And therefore, your fight-or-flight mechanisms activated. If you're living in your fight-or-flight response, means all you ever see is threat and danger. You cannot love. 
you cannot discover, you cannot learn, you cannot create. That all has to happen when you're, you're parasympathetic, when that, that system has calmed down. And so if you live in that world, all you ever see is you see strangers, you see threats. You see crowds, you see a lot of unknowns. And the world becomes exhausting. Survival mode all the time. That's it. And so literally I isolated myself from my house because in the end the world was petrifying. I knew better. Doesn't mean I'm I doesn't mean I know I, I can rationalize my way around. I knew that, but in the end my nervous system, my body could not distinguish between it yet. So it was like you were seeing the world through this lens that you couldn't unsee. Yeah. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I was I was stuck. An automatic response that I had no control over. What I had to learn was that you can find your way out of that, but it takes years of hard work. And I went through five different psychologists and psychiatrists. And by the time I went to my fifth one, I hated psychology. I hated everything to do with, I hated life and I hated, I was like, this is all pointless. And I remember I walked into her and I was like, who are you? How are you going to, how are you any different to anyone else? And what are you going to do for me? Like I literally was tired of life. I had my scare. Um, literally, I hit rock bottom. And I had given up on life. And I walked in there and then she goes to me. I'll never forget what she said to me next. She's like, Nathan, this isn't about me. This is about you. What do you want? You're in my office. What do you want out of coming in to see me? And suddenly I was like, it threw me for six. No one had ever asked me that. That perspective I'd never seen before. And before I knew it, we'd set goals. And I was really good at goals. goals. (laughs) I love goals. And she challenged me. It was almost like a dare. Do you have what it takes to do what you need to do in order to get yourself to break free of this? And I was like, She's like, I'm going to set you homework. I'm going to give you things to do. You're going to have to do them. So she knew just how you'd like to operate straight away. <laughs> and I'm like, suddenly, and then within the next couple of years, I, after like intensive psychotherapeutic support, like I started finding my way out. And I started making peace. And then I guess I started public speaking and becoming a keynote speaker to try to stop others making the same mistakes as I did. I've made some grave mistakes. And I could have dealt with things when they were molehills, except I waited and I buried and buried and they started growing and growing. And before I knew it, it was the size of the bloody Himalayas and it erupted like Mount Vesuvius. And then I had to deal with it as this big gigantic conglomerate hole. Instead of going, all right, I'm dealing with a problem right here, let's face it. I'm dealing, but... And one of the time dealing with it. But at that time, I'm like, mental health wasn't even a thing back in the 20, 2010, 11, 12. You'd, let alone in the military start talking about mental health. Like, you're pretty much, emotion was, you were taught to suppress that. And it's for a reason, because on the battlefield, you can't be curling up into a ball. There is a reason for it. But then what, I'm try, what I try to pass on to others these days is that being a man is not about just being stoic. Stoicism is great. And everyone keeps talking about toxic masculinity. There's nothing wrong with masculinity. It's about rigid views on anything is toxic. For me, stoicism served me very well on the battlefield. But when I came home, I needed to have the courage to stand up and actually walk in and go, I need help. 
but I didn't have that fluidity of view. I only ever saw it in one light, that courage was about her- heroism and duty and all these honor and going to war and the real hardcore tangible things that I could hold on to. I never, never did I ever, I didn't even know I could introspect. I never even knew that I could look inwards and actually start questioning myself and that what my view of the world was what was wrong. There was nothing wrong with the world. I hated the world, but there was nothing wrong with the world. The world had not changed. What had changed was the lens in which I was perceiving the world because of my past experiences. You'd already learned an extremely powerful lesson from war, which you couldn't apply to civilian life until you learned these lessons, which was that you can't do it alone. 100%. But that that would be the number one thing that would stand out having gone to war and had your mates back and had them have your back that that was absolutely true yeah yet in public life you couldn't see that no but like being alone i'm like if i had all the answers to help myself i would not have spiraled to the depths of hell where it almost cost me my life like full-blown suicidal ideation came up with an idea and a plan and I was lucky to have an interrupter, a mate, family when he did. And I remember him coming up to me, he's like, Bolts, what's wrong, mate? And I just collapsed. Just broke down. I had I just I was so confused. Nothing was making any sense. I had gone from this high achieving and ambitious and respectable man, a man who stood tall at the front line of Australian Special Forces, a man who in twenty thirteen was awarded Soldier of the Year voted by his hierarchy and peers as the one man that every soldier would want to be fighting alongside if shit hit the fan out of anyone they chose me and now just two and a half years later this was i was this and i was like what the hell happened i'd gone from such a optimistic proud person to the guy who literally couldn't even justify his own breath where to sleep forever became the most merciful thing i was done fuck yeah um but it's not over and that's what i learned now if you're willing to do what what is necessary and you you have the courage to do what it is that you need to do then reach out ask for help realize that you can't do it all alone if you had the answers you wouldn't be in the position that you're in right now in the first place. Go seek help. Don't stop at one person. If you're not connecting with the person, go reach out and speak to another one. No two psychs are the same. Don't blame psychology after seeing one psych and don't just stay with one psych because it's easy and comfortable. Move on, change. Find one that you connect with. And yes, okay, you're gonna have to uncover your story a few times until you find the right person. But if you, once you find the right person, you only have to tell that person once but you've got to do the time in order to find the right person. And I went through five. Apparently going through six is a normal stat. And so I fit right up in the mold. Sweet as, no dramas. How did you go through that therapy? What was, the, what was in your mind that allowed you to keep dragging yourself through that? I, hmm, hmm. I'd always believed that if my uh, mind and body had changed into this uh, somewhat unusable and rather defective state, 
I'd always believed surely uh, if my mind had changed into it, then surely I can change it back. I always knew that I could never be the same as what I once was. You can't undo the past. But surely life could be better than this. If it, if it was up to you. Where my life is right now, I, was, I made a conscious choice that it wasn't good. That life could be better. Now by asking that very question, that life could be better than this, without knowing at the time, I actually later found out that that was actually hope in disguise. Hope is a very powerful thing. A belief that you could one day break free from the shackles and the burdens of your own thoughts and that one day it was possible to actually live again. And so using that, I always managed to find meaning and purpose to keep pushing and doing what I'm doing. And I look where I am now and I'm like, shit, I am just an ordinary dude. But I had the courage to lay everything out in the line. I was like a, I had literally, I was like a car, a wrecked car. I had to pull every component out of that car, strip it back to a bare shell and start rebuilding it, replacing everything that wasn't working, every broken component and trying to salvage whatever was left. And I can tell you right now, I had to replace most of the car. But I, had, I was like a blank canvas. When I finally worked, went into my last psych, that's when I literally had my biggest scare to sleep forever was it. And I was just like, everything that I am has got me to this point. And so I am going to learn and listen and let go of any pre-existing beliefs or notions because they're the, they're the, everything that I, I am is what hurt me. And so I started rebuilding from the ground up. So you had to become something else. But it took years. You can't, yeah. I had to learn to make peace with my past. I had to make peace of a lot of those traumas. They will forever be scars that you'll forever bear. But like for so long, I had, it's like a, a beach ball in the ocean. I had, I was, the beach ball was the trauma and I'd spend, I was jumping on the beach ball trying to hold it underwater, trying to bury it. And the amount of energy and time it takes to just try to bury this pain. I was exhausted daily just trying to get through the day, just trying to hold it underwater. And then suddenly with support and help, I learned to get off the beach ball and allow it to just be there. I stopped fighting it. No longer, although a lot of those past experiences will never leave you, they'll always be a part of you. But for the first time, they were no longer defining me. That was the moment where I managed to start breaking free. Is because I could go in and draw experiences out of them and whenever I needed to, but I wasn't fighting them anymore. It was just a part of my life. But I had to make a lot of peace with it, and I had to learn that I didn't fail, that I'm not a shit person. I was deserving of a second chance. That life does have meaning and purpose again because everything that we all try to take for granted, like I had lost sight of. And that's the thing. Some of the most simplest of steps are the ones that we overlook the easiest. You go, oh, yes, it's common sense. I'm like, but do you truly believe it? And I truly believed at a time I had no purpose. I had no meaning. I had no reason to get out of bed every morning. 
And when you wake up with no reason and no purpose, what's the point of getting out of bed in the first place? And that is a sad and miserable life when that is your existence. Especially ha- having just fought so hard to stay alive and to keep your friends alive. My entire job became staying alive from myself. I was my biggest enemy. And it's hard looking back and knowing that that wasn't very long ago. That was only a few years ago. What have you been able to do since then? Everything I can to stop others making the same mistakes. And that's where, with my brother Daniel, we established Bolton Brothers, a psychology company committed to uh, changing the face of men's mental health. Um, we take a gendered approach to mental health services, um, focusing that on the needs of men. Um, really, ex- yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's pretty funny how a few years ago I had psychology and now here I am creating a psychology company. Um, so, yeah, we got a, a psych practice based out of Kenton. From a guy who hated psychology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. But I'm like, I learned. My, it was, I was just doing it wrong. That was it. I didn't understand why I was there. I thought they were meant to fix me. I thought they were meant to heal me. My goal was to go in there and help let allow them to help me help myself their goal is to be to offer perspective you unload your burdens and they will help you shift using a lot of evidence-based research to shift your perspective on what you're going through allow you to see it differently you have all the tools to help yourself you have to solve your own problems but sometimes you don't have the right perspective in order to do it and then they use a lot of their tools to offer you good perspective and then um, but then i'm like my early days i was like oh well uh what does my psychologist know about war why am i even complaining why i'm not going to see a psych who's never been to war what's the point i'm like no your goal this is where and this is a throwaway line that i know i've heard a lot of vets use and i'm all i try to tell people these days i'm like your job is to go in there and see a psych your job is to teach them teach them about being a soldier Teach them about what it is that you went through in war. And through educating your psychologist, you will also begin to form a, form a narrative and begin to understand it yourself. And when you learn to understand, especially when it comes to like um, PTSD, and which is fragmented thought, you start to create a, mar- uh, a narrative where you learn to yeah, put a piece the puzzle back together. And so yeah, you will start helping yourself by explaining it to others. And that's what I've found doing all my speaking. I've actually learnt to make sense of so much of what I have been through. So yeah, I do a lot of keynote speaking. I rip my experiences apart, my ego, my mistakes, my own ignorance. I like put it out in front of everybody and just rip into it. And I'm like, if any of you see yourself making this same, any of these same mistakes, I'm like, check yourself. I will put myself, and it hurts because it, it is the utmost of vulnerability. And no matter how many times I do it, it scares the hell out of me getting up there and doing that. Because literally I am judging myself in front of others. But I do it for none other reason to help others see within themselves that they may be doing the same mistakes as I did. And if they are, do something about it. Because life doesn't have to be that way. If you're hurting right now and you're not doing anything about it and you just believe that's where life is, then do something about it because it doesn't have to be like that. Um, and then, yeah, sit on the Premier's Council on Suicide Prevention, which um, helped drive policy and change, Wellbeing SA's Advisory Committee for Mental Health, and then the State Rep for the Special Operations Engineers 
regiment welfare associations like a military mild unit their welfare association so i'm the state chapter um representative here in sa so i do everything i can now to help others um and what evidence have you gotten that the work you do does help i'm not very good at taking compliments so i like data dump that stuff (laughs) i can i am so bad i've got enough support over the years to let me know that what i'm doing is necessary needed and i guess when i needed it most back in 2012 2013 there was no one there and i had no one there to say nathan what you're going through is normal what you're going through is this is what it is don't hate yourself but go do this instead this is what you're going through instead i had to scour the depths of hell and find all these answers for myself so the best i can do right now is well for as long as i can i was trying to be here for everyone else you thought it was just you having a unique problem yeah but i'm like we've all we all fight our own battles and like war was mine but trauma is trauma and the way it impacts the body is the same i'm like whether you're going through relationship breakout where your financial difficulty job security or anything like this stuff is stressful and if to you what you're going through is hurting you and causing you grief and pain and changing and altering the way that you see the world then i'm like the pain that you feel is real but it's amazing if you just go somewhere even if you do it with a mate but if you don't have a mate to talk to or someone who can actually give you guidance don't go to someone who's a cheerleader you don't want a cheerleader yeah no i completely agree with your pain and all that you want someone who can help actually sit there and be there with you non-judgmentally offer perspective who actively listen to what you're going through and can actually provide perspective on what you're going through and that's why psychologists are so good at what they do is because they they've seen it all before you are not unique no one is special we have everyone in society has gone through pain in some way shape or form don't ever compare the experience but the the universal theme is the way it impacts the body and the mind that is what everyone's been through so it's um who are you now who am i now i have never been more satisfied with life than doing what i do now for the first time in my life the uh, the mask is off this is me unapologetically i'm not trying to be anyone else that i'm not I can only achieve so much in my life. I'll do the best I can in order to stay, find my own meaning, my own purpose. But just being me is so freeing. I'm not burning energy trying to be someone else or live up to some... Like I still have my high achieving sort of aspect to me. I'm still working on that one. Um... It's good because that drives ambition, but I just check it. No longer do I ever like try to chase perfectionism. I chase like ninety percent. Gives me room for movement, like room for criticism, room for growth, room for not making. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, so I gave myself like barriers. Um, yeah, I couldn't be more happier with the uh, the way that my life is now and what I know about myself. 
and that's where my war experiences and all the, how dark those days were after my service was the greatest catalyst that I would ever have in my entire life because it taught me to better understand myself. War didn't make a man out of me. It set into motion a chain of events that would allow me to explore myself. And now, knowing what I know now about myself, there is nothing more rewarding and freeing than just accepting who you are and being you. Yeah. That's pretty good, eh? That's beautiful. (laughs) I don't know where I've gone today. There's been a... Well... On behalf of everyone, I think I can say thank you for your service, first of all. And thank you also for not giving up when it looked like that's the way it was going to have to go and for doing all that work over those years to become the kind of man that you've become now. I think hearing your whole story, first of all, it's jaw-dropping all across the board and it's hard to pin down where you were most courageous uh, i would say <laughs> anyone would think that oh it's got to be the the war stuff and the glory on the battlefield but i think what's so inspiring and uh, intriguing about your story is that battle that you fought within yourself and capacity to be able to overcome that in the end and face those demons and have it all almost break you but not let it and then rise from that into someone who can help others and shift others' perspectives and contribute to saving lives in a way that's so rare and so powerful. And I think any veterans listening to your story and the way you talk about it, it would ring home so truly. And just anyone who's been through any sort of trauma, the way you speak about it is so raw and undeniable and relatable and i think you now being an example of what's possible if you just persist and not just bang your head against the wall actually look for alternatives and if something's not working don't assume that nothing's going to work just keep looking until something does and know that while it's the battle that you're fighting you also can't do it alone you need to find the right help yeah and look what's possible I mean, it's fucking amazing what's possible. Our struggles are the prime movers within our day-to-day lives. Yes, they are our pain. And yes, they are our suffering. But they are also our greatest teacher. Passing on lessons that we will never forget. As Friedrich Nietzsche, a famous philosopher, once said, Only great pain is the ultimate liberator. Of the spirit and i doubt that such pain makes us better but i know it makes us more profound <sighs> thanks mate <laughs> that's it for this episode if you're getting some value out of the show please help us out with a quick rate and review on apple podcasts all our podcasts are recorded in video so follow young blood men's health matters on instagram and facebook and subscribe to our youtube channel young blood media to get the full picture and please leave us a comment if anything resonates we love hearing from you 
You're more than welcome to join our inner circle by signing up for our e-news through our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au. And most importantly, please share this podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. A special thank you to our sponsors and our local business supporters who back the work we're doing. We're all in this together and we need all the help we can get. Until next time, this is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission.